Well, I did want to take a moment to share this, and that's people have been asking about what book we're going to study next, and uh, there is probably going to be a little bit of a surprise because uh, the book that we're going to study is one that I have yet to mention, and this came from just getting some feedback, interacting with uh, some of the people of the church, the elders weighing in, and um, yeah, we're, we're actually going to go through the Gospel of Mark next, okay? So we are excited about that. We're going to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, his ministry. The theme of Mark, of course, is Jesus as a servant. So there's a number of practical aspects that we'll be able to glean from. Pastor Marcus Denny is also going through the Gospel of Mark. And so I just, because he's preaching in Czech, I'm just going to, have him send me a sermons, you know, so I was just being, just, uh, the key will just be staying just a couple weeks behind him, and you guys won't know what he preached, because he's preaching in Czech now, all right, so I was like, Pastor Marcus, so, um, no, I found out about that after the fact, and, and it's encouraging, though, that we'll be able to um, certainly bless each other by uh, sharing notes in our studies, that will be a, a great encouragement, and then yesterday, uh, Alvin and Melinda getting married was certainly uh, the highlight uh, of the weekend, such a blessing, and we can continue to lift them up in prayer as they now enjoy their lives as a married couple, and they had, they'll be gone for the next couple weeks on their honeymoon, and if you didn't get a chance to see them yesterday, you'll have a chance to congratulate them upon their return. Well, and then of course, Francis already alluded to this, it is Super Sunday, and I had a chance a couple of weeks ago, you'll recall, to let you know already who was going to win the Super Bowl. So you don't even have to watch the game. And that still stands. All right? Now, I was off on the other game in that the Colts did end up losing to the New England Patriots. But I was vindicated because New England cheated. They deflated their football. See? I did, I had, I did not have that factored in. All right? So... Had I known, probably would have swayed me enough. I knew it was going to be close enough. Probably would have gone over with the Patriots. But this still doesn't change the destiny of today. All right? And all my Seahawks fans are saying yes. And right now, Andrew's saying, forget about it. Forget about it. My, my Patriots are going to win. So I, I, I know, brother. I, I'm excited for the game. For those of you who are having get-togethers, we do hope that you uh, enjoy the activities that, and the festivities later on today. Well, as I was perfectly considering about what I was going to preach after I finished uh, the book of Titus, there were a few different options that came to mind. And many in our church have faced significant trials in the, the recent months and or the, over the last couple years. And so my heart was uh, leaning towards preaching something that dealt with trials. And then somebody in our church, a sister in the church, came up and she said, you know, Pastor John, we really need to hear a message on the sovereignty of God. And that just stuck with me. And I was like, you know what, that, that, that's, a, that's fitting, certainly fitting. And so um, I thought that was a great insight on her part. And, and since we're done with the book of Titus, and there are a number of people in our church facing trials, and you guys know what they, what they say, right? You're either going into a trial, you're in the middle of one, or you're on your way out of one. You, you, you always find yourself in one of those three areas. And so Job is a powerful book of wisdom in the Old Testament, and there are many reasons for us to study it, but I just want to share three, and of course there's more than three. But first, trials are commonplace in our life, are they not? They are. 
And I think that just like uh, other topics like uh, prayer and evangelism and purity, these are things that we need to hear regular exhortations on because they are so commonplace. The second reason, the Bible does provide some notable examples of enduring trials, but there's one example that Scripture specifically features. James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 says this, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. So many prophets are noted, and we're, we're called to, to take them into consideration, but it's Job who is featured specifically in Scripture for good reason, which we'll see in just a little bit. A third reality, and perhaps the driving reason and why I believe God would have us consider the book of Job is because the wisdom found in Job helps us to understand God's sovereignty in our trials. Trials, as I've already mentioned, are inevitable on this side of the cross. We're, we're going to face them. And they are circumstances that have the potential to promote incredible fear and doubt in our minds, as, even as believers. And in many instances, they force us to travel to places that we've never traveled before. Uncharted territory. Never lived through some of these situations. And questions begin to pop up in our mind. How will we handle this if this happens? Or if that happens? What will we do if we don't make it? And they involve real life issues. The sudden death of a loved one. A spouse. A child, a friend, foreclosure on your home or business, bankruptcy, cutbacks at work, being laid off, broken family relationships, the threat of divorce with someone in your family, custody battles, rebellious children, diagnosis with a, a fatal or life-changing disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. And just like the book of James lets us know, it, it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when we're going to encounter some various trial. And so whether it's physical illness, financial hardship, or any number of unexpected tragedies, God wants Christians to understand his sovereignty. And as our sermon title indicates, our message today will focus on God's sovereignty in our suffering. And to gain insights into it, we're going to survey the entire book of Job. And we're going to break it down into three sections. And this is reflected in your outline in your notes. The sermon proposition is also there for you. Three lessons from the life of Job so that we completely trust God's sovereignty in our trials and sufferings. Three, the three lessons are as follows. First, lesson number one, the trials of Job's sufferings should instruct us. And we're going to take an overlook or do, look at an overview of, of Job's trial. And we'll consider how Job responded. And then practically, letter C, have it built into the sermon. We're, we're going to consider how we should respond in trials. Then lesson number two is this. 
the temptations of Job's friends should caution us. There are five people over the course of the book that Job interacts with who have an influence on him by giving him counsel. His wife, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. And if you're a pregnant couple, maybe again I'm offering you some more names. No, these are, these are, these are guys that we, we may not want to emulate, so we can, we can take those names um, off the, the list of possibilities. But we're going to look at them. We're going to consider what it is that they shared and how this had an impact. Did it help Job understand God's sovereignty, or was it an impediment to his understanding? And then lesson number three, the truths about God's sovereignty should secure us. We're going to look at God's attention to the details. We're going to take a look at both of God's hands in his sovereign plan, according to his sovereignty. Both of his hands, and I'll talk to you about what that means. And then we're going to look at God's own example of suffering. Again, three lessons from the life of Job so that we completely trust God's sovereignty through our trials and sufferings. And when it comes to God's sovereignty, let me share this, that the book of Job is exhibit A in the courtroom of God. It is, and for good reason, which we'll see. Let's get started with our first lesson. The trials of Job's suffering should instruct us. And our scripture reading this morning was Job chapter 1, and it introduced us to our friend Job. And let us begin by confirming that Job was a real man who lived and endured a very real and unimaginable trial. And the opening verse of chapter 1 states that Job lived in the land of Uz. Uz was a land east of Judah, out in the desert. And this is, isn't allegory. This isn't f- fictional. We're, we're not talking about the land of Oz here. Okay, we're talking about a real man who lived in a real place who endured this very real trial. And if anything, just to make a point, we could actually make a reference to it being the land of us. Why? Because Job lived on the same fallen planet that you and I do. And this book, like many others in the Old Testament, is named after the key character in the story. And we see this in other books, of course, in Daniel, in Esther, and Jonah, okay, and now we have Job. And while it's possible that Job could have written the book of Job, there is no concrete evidence to suggest that he did. Now, the name Job actually means much persecuted. Interesting. And internal evidence suggests that Job lived in the patriarchal period. And God describes Job as someone who was blameless upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He was a man of great faith. And like the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and other Old Testament believers, Job was justified by his faith in God. He believed God. His faith was in God. And as a result of his faith in God, he was declared righteous in God's sight. New Testament believers of course, are declared righteous by faith in Christ. And so this is something that we share in common with Job. Our righteousness and Job's righteousness come from God. But there are some differences between us and Job. Though Job was someone who stood justified and declared righteous based on his faith, Job was also very mature in his spiritual growth and sanctification. 
He was holy. And he was continually turning to the Lord and turning away from evil. How godly was Job? Well, God states in verse 8 that there was no one like him on the earth. He was very mature, very grounded in his faith. And Job's faithfulness also allowed God to entrust him with great prosperity. In the second verse of the opening chapter, we, we see that George, George, Job was, <laughs> George in my notes, no, Job was, was, was blessed with um, possessions, and uh, his prized possessions, of course, included his seven sons and three daughters. They were a family of ten, sounds like. The Danilo's over there, okay, a little bit. And I was joking with them. They threw me off by sitting on the other side today. My equilibrium's a little off here, but, um, but, but he had ten kids. He was blessed with prosperity from the Lord. Well, let's consider our first sub-point, which is letter A in your outline, an overview of Job's trial. How did Job's trial start? And I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 13 of chapter 1, it says this in the NAS, Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. Normal everyday business in the life of Job. And the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. First warning. And while he was still speaking, he hadn't even finished his sentence. And check this out. While he was still speaking, another also came up to him and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And again, while this person was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while... He was still speaking. Another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In a moment, in a moment, Everything that he had, his children, his possessions were gone. Everything removed from him, except his wife. I found it really interesting that the Lord didn't allow him to take his wife. I was just thinking about just even as related to the wedding and because of the unity, because of the fact that they were one. They were one. Maybe the Lord spared his wife in in the oneness. And I'm speculating there, but I just was interested to think about it. This wasn't, this wasn't a stock market crash. This wasn't just, um, okay, as, as tough as it might be hearing the news about a random school shooting or, 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 or some disaster. This was everything. And we see multiple layers of this coming at Job time and time again. And I think none of us can really even imagine what it would be like to go through such a trial. But this was just the beginning for Job. Look at chapter 2. It shares that Job was also stripped of his physical health and then suffered from horrific boils. His body was covered from the top of his head, it says, to the soles of his feet. Covered completely 
with, with boils. And I'm not a doctor, so I don't know what that's like, but I can imagine, you know, to, to some level, it would be like getting shingles all over, all over his body, but, but, but open sores. Maybe it would be like, um, I've never had one, but if you've had a cold sore on your lip, you know, the, just the sore, the, the, the pain. My mom used to get them all the time. Painful. Imagine that overcoming your entire body. Painful. Horrific. And I have one question before we even go on. What would you do? I mean, think about it. How would you handle such a trial? Can, can you even, you know, and you guys know the, the testimony of, of what we've been through just recently. You know, I thought we've had it pretty rough just the last couple of weeks. Stomach flu camping out in the crick house, you know. And, and I was preparing this message and, you know, it just really, really, the Lord really used it and put things in perspective for us. I think most of us may not be exactly sure how it is that we would respond. But I do know this, that God wants us to firmly understand and trust his sovereignty if it did, or if anything similar were to happen. Sovereignty, defined by systematic theologian Wayne Grudem, he, he defines it this way, God's exercise of power over his creation. Okay, good definition. God's exercise of power over his creation. And there are actually two aspects of how God exercises his power over his creation. One is active and the other is passive. His active power is displayed in good deeds that he causes to happen. An example of this would be God causing the heart of a sinner to be born again to live as a Christian. It's, it's an active power. God causes it to happen. His passive power is displayed in the suffering that he allows to happen. An example of this would be Jesus' crucifixion and death performed by evil men, which God allowed to happen. Both of these aspects involve God's sovereignty. We'll spend more time talking about these under our, our third lesson. But for now, we need to make sure that we understand, that we comprehend the overview, the magnitude of Job's trial. And I think, as I've already alluded to, I, I don't think that um, you or I, Lord willing, will ever face a trial that's going to exceed Job's. Yet God has lessons for us so that we can receive the help with the trials that he's ordained specifically for us. And to understand these Let's consider our second and third subpoints. Letter B is, how did Job respond? And then letter C is, how would God have us respond? And both answers to these subpoints are recorded for us in Scripture. First, letter B, how did Job respond? The first part of chapter 1 starts off with Job worshiping God when things are good. He's healthy, his children are healthy, and Job is worshiping God. And then, God points Job out to Satan the first time. And Satan comes up to God and basically says this, Job worships you for pay. He's a mercenary worshiper. In fact, God, if you'll go ahead and you'll take away his possessions, I'm telling you this, he's going to curse you to your face. You watch. 
That's his heart. He is going to curse you to your face. Would Job serve God for profit, as Satan alleged? Well, look at, at Job chapter 1, verse 20. Excuse me, uh, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And here Job, he shows intense grief according to the custom of his day. And notice he humbly accepted God's will without complaining or blaming God for his tragedies. Job acknowledged God's sovereign control over the circumstances, and he does what? He falls to the ground and he worshiped. How else did he respond? Look at Job 1.22. It says this, Through all this, remember, it was multiple things that came. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And all God's people said, wow. Wow. Job's faith and his integrity stayed in fact. The wall of Job's faith guarded his heart. And it kept him focused on God. And he said, God is in control. He is in control of what I'm going through right now. And he trusted him. Even when those around him were starting to begin to have their doubts. Job's wife even questioned him in chapter 2, verse 9, by asking, do you still hold fast your integrity? How did Job respond to her? He responds directly in verse 10. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And the verse finishes by him saying and affirming again, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is Job's response. He did not sin. This is a godly response. This is a testimony of a man of faith. He didn't sin. Rather, he trusted God's exercise of power over him and his circumstances. And yes, this was passive, right? This is God's passive power and his sovereignty. God allowed Satan to, to allow this to happen, okay? Decreed that this could happen. And spiritually, Job trusted the Lord when he faced it. You know what it was? He, he, he was braced for impact. You, you know, it was like the plane going down and everybody in, in their seats and they announced that the plane's going down. Here comes the trial, right? And everyone's braced for impact. Spiritually, Job was braced for impact in his life. And my question for you this morning is, how are you embraced for impact? How ready are you for a crash landing in your life? Is your faith prepared to grow? Or would you say it's more inclined to groan? Is your heart and are your lips prepared to honor God through the trial that you're currently engaged in? Or the one that's going to be headed your way soon? And I want to have a moment just to shepherd your hearts, if you allow me. Because our hearts are deceptive. And we, we get tempted when these big trials come into our lives. And there's four specific ways that, that we get tempted. There's actually more than four, but these are the big four, okay? 
when a big trial comes into our life, we're tempted to, to feel helpless, hopeless, abandoned, and angry. Those, those are the big four. I believe those are in your notes, correct? Or if not, you may have to write them down. Helpless, hopeless, abandoned, and angry. Notice what I said. We're tempted to feel this way, and this is where spiritual warfare comes into play. And that's not a charismatic statement. That is the reality, that truth in our life that needs to instruct our hearts when we're being tempted emotionally needs to be in place. And there are truths that need to govern our lives spiritually when these temptations come. And let's start with the feeling of being helpless or feeling helpless. Question for you, believer. When a big trial hits, I want you to just think about this. Are we ever helpless? Are we ever helpless? No. In Psalm 46, the psalmist reminds us of something that we can't lose sight of. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verse 2, therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake and its swelling pride. What was the psalmist's point? No matter how difficult our circumstances or the trials that we were faced, we are always going to have God's advocacy and his help in our lives. In fact, it's going to even go beyond that. Not only is he going to be the place of refuge and the place of safety for us, he's also going to provide the strength. We just need to trust him through our trials and sufferings. Hebrews 4.15 is another familiar passage, but one we definitely got to keep in mind. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And then verse 16 continues, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We are not helpless. And just in these two passages, God's given us two actions that we can take, that we have to take when the trial hits. We have to trust. We have to trust him. We have to trust. And we're going to unpack this even more when we get under lesson three and and see this. We, We have to trust him. And then we can also draw near to the throne of grace and bring our requests and rely upon him in prayer. And of course, we also have other believers to encourage us and to shoulder the weight of the trial, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. Well, I have a question. Have you ever been tempted to feel, or are you being tempted to feel helpless in a trial that you're currently going through, that you're in the middle of? Or as you look back and you um, look through, look at the trials and maybe look back on a trial, was there aspects of your own heart where you felt helpless? How does the Lord want you and I to respond? And the truth of his word provides clear direction for us. 
Again, it's the value of a verse, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful at the heart of that verse. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond, even with those feelings of deception coming in. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able to endure, but he's going to provide you the way of escape. And when we face trials, we have to be ready. We have to be ready to look to, to the truth. Well, there's a second temptation, and it is to be hopeless. And I call this the, the close twin of feeling helpless. And at the heart of the gospel is our hope in Christ. And we've covered this in previous sermons, the significance of our hope in Christ, right? It functions as the anchor of the soul, Hebrews 6.18. And it's intended to keep us grounded in the storms and the trials of life. Listen, God is not going to allow you to drown in the sea of your suffering. He's not. He's not. And it's our faith that serves as a platform to hope. In Romans chapter 5, another great passage. They're all my favorites. But Romans chapter 5, right, if you know the the context of those first opening two verses, it talks about the significance of our justification by faith. And then when we get to verse 3, it says this, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that the tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In this passage, as well as James chapter 1, 2, and 3, again, another familiar passage, are, are notable ones when we face trials and tribulations. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance what, be perfect and complete, right? So that we're lacking nothing. But these passages are misunderstood. Some think that they're commanding us to actually like or enjoy the trials that we're going through, and that's not the case. That we can actually hate the trial. You can hate the things that are caused by evil. We abhor evil, right? We cling to what is good. I hated watching my girls throw up. I hated, personally, waking up in cold sweats and... And fever and chills. You know that feeling. And it's like, ooh, we're not going over to the cricks for a long time. <laughs> Stay clear. Stay clear. But we, we don't have to like it. God's not some sadist who is, expects us to somehow to be enjoying the pain that results from evil causes in our broken world. He's not. These passages, rather, are intended to instill hope. And they have us think joyfully about the opportunities that such trials bring as they put God's work in our lives on display. The focus shouldn't be on the trials themselves. The focus needs to be on the outcome of what the trials are going to produce in you. And that is where God is at work. That is where God can do something for good. That he can take something that is evil, something that was caused by evil, and, and through you, and give you the strength, and be your refuge, and be your, be your hope, and grow you through a result. And Lord willing, you and I will be able to boast and to even experience joy because of God, how God works in us 
and through us as a result. Well, there's a third temptation that comes when we face major trials, and it's this, to feel abandoned. We can be tempted to think that somehow, you know, God has left us. Or nobody could possibly understand what it is that I'm going through. Isolated. And again, the spiritual battle for truth is critical here. And we have more promises from his word and and passages that you're familiar with. Hebrews 13.5. He'll never leave us nor forsake us, right? God says that. He says it to Moses in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 31.6. Then in Hebrews 13.5, he affirms it again, that he's going to never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, verse 6, the following verse, after Hebrews 13.5, it says, so that we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. He doesn't abandon us. And we must resist the temptation when those feelings come. They're trying to deceive us. In fact, in his providence, through the church, God provides the leaders in the church, the members of the church, there to support us and to remind us of these truths. Brothers and sisters, to pray and care for us in the midst of our trials and sufferings. Have you ever felt abandoned in a trial? Have you ever felt in your heart you're you're all alone going through this? Believer, let me tell you this. He has always been there, and he has never left. He has never left. He is right there in your midst. And you, you need to grab that truth. You need to cling to that truth, that promise. He's always going to be there. Well, there's a fourth temptation that comes when we face major trials and sufferings, and that's the temptation to feel angry. And I believe that this is really a culmination and comes into play when all those previous feelings can mount up, when we feel helpless, when we feel hopeless, and we feel like we're all on our own. And then it's just like, it, it, can, it can fester, it can boil within us, right? Because we're not clinging to truth and we're allowing our feelings of our heart to govern our lives and we can get angry. And you can shake your fist at God and say, okay, God, if it's gonna be this way, and this is how it's going to go down, and you see how helpless and hopeless and isolated I am right now. I'm going to resist your will. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking into consideration. People, people have suffered serious, serious breakdown when that's happened. And we get angry because we want to have control. We want to be the sovereign one, but we can't. We cannot be. We can end up sparring with God. Not a good idea, by the way. John Feinberg, who, he faced this reality when his wife was diagnosed with a horrible genetic disease, and he wrote, it is lunacy to pick a fight you can't win. Even more, it's beyond lunacy to fight someone who, rather than being the cause of your problems, is the only possible answer to them. Wow, powerful, powerful truth. And if we're not careful, our anger can blind us from seeing the truth. How does God want us to respond? He doesn't want us to feel helpless, hopeless, abandoned, 
or angry. He wants us to trust sovereign hands. He wants us to recognize the fact that he is in control and he is there for us in every single way. We're going to talk more about that. I was thinking about this just as it related to even some of the testimonies, and I have a book on, on martyrs and those who have been killed for the faith. And it's just powerful to see God be the strength and, and the refuge for some people who were literally doused in oil and tied to the stake, and then the match lit. And they were singing the whole time. They sang through, even through the, the pain and the suffering of being lit on fire. They, 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 they clung to the truth. They knew that it was only temporary. They saw it in sight. They knew in a moment, and now they're with him. They have perfect understanding, and so will we be someday. Well, our second and third lessons will continue to cultivate our understanding. We're studying three lessons from the life of Job so that we trust God's sovereignty through our trials and sufferings. Lesson number one, the trials of Job's suffering should instruct us. Lesson number two, the temptations of Job's friends should caution us. This is the largest section of the book, and you'll notice in the outline that I put in your notes, it starts all the way from chapter 2, verse 9, and goes all the way through chapter 36. And throughout this massive section of the book, there are exchanges between Job and five of his friends. And I want us to briefly consider the temptations that some of them provide and how they should caution us. And again, we only have time to do a survey. The first exchange takes place in chapter 2 between Job, who, this exchange is between who we might presume would be his best friend, his wife. Scripture doesn't even provide us with her name. But considering the counsel that she gave, perhaps it's better that she remain nameless because she encourages Job to curse God and die. Now, before we hasten to judge her too quickly or harshly, we should consider the fact of how difficult this trial was for her. This is a shared trial. When Job lost his possessions, she lost hers too. When Job lost his children, she lost hers too. When Job was covered from head to foot with festering sores, she bore the weight of that trial as well. And Job's reply is remarkable in the compassion he showed towards his wife and in his total acceptance of God's will for his life. And I'm sure Job seeing the magnitude and the weight of this trial on his wife added weight to, to Job's trial. And for those of us who have ever witnessed somebody go through a trial, you know, parents especially with, with our kids, we almost wish that we could endure the suffering for them. When Lydia went in for appendectomy, you know, I was, I, Lord, take me, take my appendix. I, I'll, I'll endure it. You know, you want, and it gives us some sense of control. My teenagers, some of, the, some of you are familiar with kids that even cut themselves, right? You heard of cutting, right? You know why they do that? It's control. Their lives are, are messed up. They desperately need Christ. And you know why you cut or why they cut? Because, because it allows them to control the, the pain at the level that they want it, right? Versus the reality that there's circumstances all around, outside that they can't control. It's really a struggle and, and, a, and a temptation to be sovereign is really what they're trying to be when they grab a hold to do that. Well, in a time of weakness, Job's wife spoke and certainly tempted Job by uh, her weakness of faith. And suicide and death were very real temptations. And I don't think it's ironic that after her suggestion, 
that we see Job in chapter 3 reveal a heart of greater desperation and discouragement. So here's a little help. And some of you may be being introduced to Job for the first time. Some of you may have read it numerous times before. But I want to give you a little bit of of a help. When, When we read Job, we have to put his shoes on. Okay, you have to imagine yourself in his role, and that will allow you to understand the correspondence that his friends are trying to have. Okay, that will, will broaden your perspective, and this takes great effort. Why? Because we're not the one covered with boils. We're not the one who literally lost our children and our possessions and servants, close friends, servants. Right? Well, Job's wife's counsel was not good counsel. What lesson can we learn from it? Well, had Job listened to her counsel, he would have never known the outcome of God's grace and mercy, which gets revealed. I mean, imagine this if the book just ended at Job 2.11. And it said, and then Job listened to the counsel of his wife. He's cursed God and hung himself. That's all we have. It ended. Left guessing what happened. Jonah kind of leaves you like that. You're wondering what happened with Jonah um, in, in the end. But it, but it doesn't. It continues. And the temptation of her counsel should caution, caution us. Just like Job, it is possible for us to be surrounded by someone who might lead us astray from God's will by providing bad counsel. And as believers, we need to be prepared to help guide those who don't understand God's sovereignty. And in this case, it was Job helping his wife and those who are married, it may be you having to help your, your spouse going through the trial that you go through to, to see and recognize and understand God's sovereignty. Or somebody else in your family or a friend. Maybe it'll be someone in care group tempted to feel helpless and hopeless and they're angry with God and the Lord will use you to help them see the truth about his sovereignty in their suffering. Well, friend number two, which is letter B in your outline, is Eliphaz. And unlike Job's wife, we have a much larger account of the counsel of Eliphaz and Job's other friends. And there's a strong reason to believe that Eliphaz is the oldest because the culture would have allowed the oldest person that would have showed him honor by allowing him to speak first. And it's in this section where the book of Job, it can get pretty difficult to understand. So much of the counsel that Job's friends share is correct, but their attitudes and tones, and even in some instances, their counsel is defective. And this is an important key to unlocking our understanding of the book. And it's just like when we write a letter or an email or a Facebook message, sometimes there's tones communicated in what we say. Everyone's smiling, yeah. Sometimes they're gentle tones, soft tones. Sometimes they can be pretty direct and straightforward. One commentator offered this, you know, as it related to Eliphaz's patronizing attitude that's embedded within his counsel. He said, it's not what Eliphaz knew that, what, knew that was wrong. It was what he was ignorant of, God's hidden purpose that made all of his beautiful poetry and grand truth only a snare to Job. And this is very apparent in Job chapter 4 where Eliphaz claims that the innocent do not suffer, implying that Job somehow must have sinned. But we know what? God already provided the testimony of Job's life. And the word says what? He didn't sin. He was blameless. He was upright. And the lesson that we can take away from God's sovereignty here is that sometimes we can suffer even though we have not sinned. 
And this was the case with Job. Now, whenever we do suffer, it's good to reflect. It's spiritually healthy to, to think about the fact that maybe there is unrepentant sin in my life. And this is why God has ordained an event that involves me being chastened or suffering. But here, Eliphaz's counsel should caution us. He's ignorant of God's hidden purposes, and sometimes only God will know the reason why we are going through a specific trial. And Eliphaz implying that Job has somehow sinned is certainly a temptation and a snare for Job. So what is the lesson that God would have us take away here? Watch out for potential Eliphazes in your life. Be cautious of counsel that automatically assumes that your sin is the cause for your trial when God may have some, some hidden purpose for it. And this takes discernment and transparency before the Lord. But the lesson that we can take away under this point is that sometimes God's sovereignty involves purposes that only he is aware of. And we don't want to be an Eliphaz either, right? We don't want to be presumptuous that somehow we, we know. We know what ultimately God's trying to teach you. Okay? We have to, got to be cautious. Friend number three is named Bildad. Bildad is a classic example of a friend who is right-headed but wrong-hearted. He heard Job with his ears, but his heart heard nothing and really lacked sympathy. And Eliphaz indicated that Job's sin was the cause. And now Bildad is indicating that his children may have sinned. And there's a callous tone embedded in his counsel. Just listen to Bildad's counsel in Job 8.4. If your sons sinned against him, the Lord, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. And all God's people said, ouch. I mean, you can imagine, he, he lost his kids. And I didn't even know how you could even... Even mention those, those words, right? Can you imagine? Wow. And Bildad indicates that Job's children may have gotten what they deserved and that Job may be on his way to the same fate. And even though some of his advice was at the time accurately and artistically stated, in the end, all it did was tempt Job to be more stubborn and express resistance towards his friends. His counsel should caution us in a similar vein as it does with Eliphaz. And a takeaway for us is to make sure that we are showing compassion and empathy towards those who are hurting. And also that we'd be extremely cautious and prayerful about what counsel, that we really need to think this through. You know, if, if, if a close friend, somebody in your care group is going through a difficult trial and a difficult time, that you, you really discern about the counsel that you bring. And try to have it be wisdom from the Lord. Try to have it be something that's going to help them see God's sovereignty and help them see a truth that is going to propel them forward. Proverbs 25.11 comes to mind. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. So true. Well, friend number four is named Zophar. And Zophar was just like Bildad in that he lacked compassion and he was ruthlessly judgmental. And listen to how he starts his counsel in Job 11, verses 1 through 3. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boast silence men, and shall you scoff and none rebuke? He was convinced that Job was suffering 
that, pardon me, that Job was suffering to the point of despair and that Job was actually getting much less than he deserved. It was basically like somebody saying, it could be worse. You know, really? It could be worse. And I know you went through this tragedy, but, I mean, think about it. It could, it could be worse. Again, not very helpful. Here's a funny little statement of Job's friends. I, I wrote this. Um, Bad counsel will only get you so far. Okay? It's a little way to remember it. What's the life lesson that we take away? I know I'm cheesy. Uh, don't be a Zophar. Don't be a Bildad. Most trials are already difficult enough. The last thing a person who's enduring a significant trial needs is counsel from someone who thinks that they have it all figured out. And their only interest is sharing their perspective. We're to presume that they know exactly what God's trying to teach. When Job's friends and the lessons that we could t- take away, it should caution us. Because they did not know. They did not see it. And we may not see it. The last friend to offer counsel is the youngest, and it's that of Elihu, which is the final name listed under lesson number two. And of all the counsel that's been offered up to this point, Elihu's counsel seems to be the most reasonable, although it is grounded in anger, which you can read about at the beginning of chapter two. But I want to share these because these, these are good takeaways for us. There are two aspects of temptation that can serve as life lessons for us as we consider and study Job's interaction with his friends. First, the temptation to listen to counsel that shouldn't be listened to. And second, the temptation to give counsel that shouldn't be given. We'll start with listening to counsel that shouldn't be listened to. Not all counsel is good counsel. This is going to blow your minds away. Wisdom comes from wise counsel. Ooh, deep thought right there. It does. Wisdom is rooted in wise counsel, and as we'll see under our final point of the message, wisdom always starts with what God has to say. And here's a little tip in securing wise counsel for yourself. Find friends that start their sentences with, God's word says, or this is what the Lord taught me when I was going through a similar circumstance. You'll serve yourself well if you'll do that. And the second aspect of temptation that we learn from Job's friends is the temptation to give counsel that shouldn't be given. We live in a speak first, think second culture in this world. We do. And we need to take into consideration uh, what, what it is that we're saying. And you should pay attention to yourself, just even in the care group setting, how often you say the words, I think, I think, I think. And again, it's not that your opinions to be minimized. And that you have an insight that could be appreciated and, and, and bless somebody. But we need to make sure that our counsel is rooted in God's word. And the most effective counsel that Job ever received from his friends is seen in chapter 2, 11 through 13. And you've got to see this. This is how we're going to end our message. Now, when Job's friends heard of all of his adversity... They had come, that had come upon him, this chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. They, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they drew dust over their heads toward the sky. And they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word, for they saw 
that his pain was great. That, my friends, was effective ministry. Opening their mouths only got them in trouble. And that's why Proverbs 10, 19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. I used to joke that apparently all of Job's wise friends died with his servants. The beginning of the book. John Feinberg, you know, who I mentioned, who had his wife get diagnosed with horrible genetic disease. Theologian. Probably amongst the, one of the strongest theologians that, you know, from the material that I've read. In fact, I used his book, The Many Faces of Evil. Great book on, if you want to understand God's purposes and evil, great, great work. Many Faces of Evil. But his wife was enduring that trial. You know what he said? People would come up and try to provide advice theologically and or philosophically. And he said, you know, you know what helped him the most? was just people coming up to let them know let him know that they cared just that they cared and that they they were praying and I think that this just is reflected really at at the beginning of uh, um, you know for Job when we see this was this was the best the best thing that could be done sometimes we don't even know what to say right if somebody's lost a mother or father tragically and suddenly you don't even know what to say show up just be there. Just sit with them. Just let them know you care for them. Just, you, you may not have the answer, and you don't need to, but God gives us an excellent, excellent way that we can minister to them through the example at the beginning of the book. Well, God offers security in his sovereignty in the book of Job, and we've gained understanding from the trial of Job's life, which instructs us. We have learned the temptation about the temptations of Job's friends, which should caution us. And next Sunday, we'll conclude with lesson number three, the truth about God's sovereignty should secure us. And we have indeed saved the best for last next Sunday. So I hope you're able to join us. In conclusion, we have learned that Job was trying to teach, uh, that God was trying to teach him without, (laughs) Job would have never learned what God was trying to teach him without the trials that he faced. And by divine design, trials train us and keep us dependent upon the Lord so that we can learn more about God and giving him glory as we endure them. And to close our time, I want to read this very brief poem from John Newton that I think provides great insight into the suffering that God allows in his sovereignty. Here is what he wrote. You can meditate on these words. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith, in love, and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all 
in me. Next Sunday, we'll have an opportunity to tackle the third and final lesson, which will help us understand God's sovereignty and our suffering even more. We'll look at God's attention to the details, his sovereign hands, and even his own example of suffering. Please pray with me. Father, we bow our heads, acknowledging your presence, and we do know that we serve a sovereign God and that you do exercise power over your creation, and we are a part of that creation. And I pray, Father, that this message today would just simply provide a foundation and a platform for your sovereignty, and as we look at it in greater depth next Sunday, that you would allow us to see how you are indeed involved in every single detail and circumstance of our life. Either actively or passively, your power is put on display. And Father, we have you as a refuge because we've trusted in you. We've confessed Christ. We've looked to him and we can now have your advocacy and help in our life. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here today that has never asked you for forgiveness and has come not to the end of their own life and yielded themselves to your will, that today would be the day that they would repent of their sin and turn to you and trust in you for salvation, that their heart could be born again according to your sovereign plan and that they could understand and begin to grow and learn about these things. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to put the gospel on display in our own lives. We thank you for the wisdom that can only be found in your word. We rejoice in you. We pray that you'll bless second hour as we're encouraged by your word there as well. Again, we rejoice in you and praise you for this time. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.